This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, as Ben White headlined on Morning Money, our short national nightmare is over. I've tried to give buoy room to the shutdown showdown on this program. The outcome was so predictable, after all. But Jeff Smith spent much of the show two weeks ago talking about it. And last week, Matt Makoviak, Bob Cost, and I hashed on it, too. Now we scavenge the leftovers with my old friend Ron Fournier of the National Journal asking, I think, the more important question. Obama wins. Big whoop. Can he lead? Then... The Everything Store. It started out as books, and now Amazon is the place to go for everything. From replacement label tape to first-run dramatic television. As an Amazon Prime subscriber, I ran out of label tape for my brother P-Touch this weekend, and instead of jumping in the car to my nearest Staples, I pulled out my iPhone and ordered up a quick replacement. No gas, no time expended. Brad Stone is the author of the hot new book about how Jeff Bezos is transforming global commerce and doing it in a polyoptic way. He'll join us at the bottom of the hour. But first, he's cranking out columns even as he's cheering on Doug Fister, continuing the string of magnificent Detroit Tigers starting pitching, confounding my Red Sox sluggers. Ron Fournier, we don't know how Game 5 will turn out, but they'll be playing Game 6 this afternoon at Fenway. How has this season and the playoff run been for you watching your team? And if there is a World Series at Comerica Park, let me suggest that Fournier throw out the first pitch in place of Sweet Lou Whitaker. Welcome to Polyoptics. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We know, we know how the games turned out on Thursday. The Tigers won, and they're going to win tonight and, uh, and go to the World Series. And I would love to throw out the first pitch, except I don't think I could get it all the way to the plate. It'd but be bad optics. You think... Uh, you're living on some alternative universe because Lester pitched a two-hitter, blanked the Tigers, and Big, Big Pappy hit another one in the seventh. Uh, on Thursday night, no, it was a different game. Lester blew out his elbow. <laughs> Tigers won eight to nothing. Let's hear a little bit of uh, just a, a clip from Game Four before we get into what's happening in Washington. Game number four. All right, Tory Hunter. Some lineup changes made by Jim Leland. Leading off for the first time since 1999. Miguel Cabrera bat second. Jim, why the changes? You can say I'm crazy. You can say I'm nuts. You can say I'm dumb. You can say whatever the hell you want. Jackson struck out 18 times and with blah, blah, blah. Leland needs to do something. Well, here it is, so have a good time with it. We'll see how it plays out. All right, let's see. Austin Jackson no longer leaning off. Some of the pressure taken off. Again, he was 3 for 33 with 18 strikeouts. Jake Peavy gets the start for the Red Sox. Base is loaded, and Peavy walks the ice-cold Austin Jackson. That takes the pressure off. Ron Fournier, really, talk about this uh, Tigers team and and uh, the manager, Jim Leland, and your connection with the team over your many years. Oh, I grew up uh, in, in Detroit and uh, spent a lot of time in the old Tiger Stadium and now have a lot of family, including my daughter, living up there. My daughter just lives down the block from Comerica Park. Leland is, um, he's a hell of a manager. What he did there, I mean, you talk about leadership in politics and in life. Here's a guy who decided, uh, you know, to shake it up wasn't just to take pressure off a of hunter and, and, uh, and, and the guys. It was basically to say, you know what, I'm going to take all the pressure. I'm going to make this lineup change so, so if it backfires, if you guys don't get any hits tonight, it'll be my fault. So you just go out there and have some fun. And wouldn't you love to hear a politician say basically what he said after a, you know, after a bad game or before a big game? Well, that's um, really, I mean, that's what I want to get into because let's also yeah. hear a little bit of, uh, of the House Speaker, John Boehner, and maybe compare him to John Leland. Now, over the last 30 years, dozens of times, uh, there have been negotiations over funding our government. All of those negotiations over the last uh, 30 years have resulted in, in significant policy changes. And I would remind you that the President of the United States and I uh, sat down in the spring of 2011 uh, to negotiate a funding bill for the government uh, from March all the way through uh, September. Uh, during that negotiation, uh, there were all kinds of policy considerations. And if you recall, uh, the opportunity scholarships for kids here in D.C 
was, in fact, restored into law. So the President's uh, position that, uh, listen, uh, we're not going to uh, sit down and talk to you until uh, you surrender is just not sustainable. It's not our system of government. So Ron Fournier, leadership at both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue, what are you seeing? I'm, I'm not seeing a whole heck of a lot of it. Uh, I don't think any most Americans aren't seeing a lot of leadership, especially you know, if you're going to parse out the blame, which we need to do. Um, you can't do it evenly. You have to try to um, um, uh, hold leaders accountable for what they've done and haven't done. And in, in Speaker Boehner's case, you know, he's being led by the Tea Party, not the other way around. I'm not telling you anything you don't know or probably don't uh, agree with. Um, it's it, the fact that uh, Republicans went into this fight with no strategy, uh, any sane Republican knowing that they were going to lose. There's no way the president could have or should have give up uh, health care reform at, the, at the, um, the threat of blowing up the economy. That would be bad politics for President Obama, and that would have been a terrible precedent for future presidents, including, you know, someday, I guess, Republicans might conceive that they're going to have the White House someday. So why would they, why would they, they do the suicide mission that's a bad precedent for, for the next president? It was really one of the most ham-handed, irresponsible things I've ever seen in politics. Um, President Obama, uh, who's off to a miserable uh, start of his second term, whose presidency so far is pretty much the legacy is a health care um, reform bill that is off to a horrid start and um, at its best is going to be you know, pretty, uh, pretty hard to implement. And they're going to really have to uh, step up their game to get this implemented. Um, you know, if he's not careful, he's going to leave office with a pretty weak legacy. I think, and I may be very naive here, but what I wrote today was, I think, if you set a, if you get get beyond today, okay, he won, great, okay, but now what do we do? He has an opportunity to take it, take this leverage that he has built up by stomping the Republicans and running to a weakened enemy and offering them a lifeline. Basically, you know, I'm legitimately willing to talk about um, giving you something that the Republicans need and could take advantage of for the next generation. And that is a Democratic president signing off on entitlement reform. Um, if I can help you find a way, and there's Republicans out there who I've, I've been talking to, including one just today, uh, to raise some revenue. Because both sides have incentive to strike a deal that um, eases this runaway debt that we have, that, that history will saddle with the sitting president. And there's too many um, Democrats in this town, including the president, um, and too many Republicans in this town who are being irresponsible. On the Democratic side, you hear the president even today spinning that the budget really isn't that big of a problem because the deficit is going down so quickly. Well, it's going down fast, but the debt is, is, is a bigger problem than it ever has been in our nation's history. And he's got to do something about that. And the Republicans, they know there is not enough revenue in the system right now. There's not even enough revenue in the system to support the spare budget they put forward, let alone what our children and grandchildren are going to need um, to sustain the, the, the cost of, of entitlements. So, you know, we need more Jim Leland and uh, less Speaker Boehner, I guess is how I'd put it. And let's hear a little bit of uh, President Obama from Thursday in his uh, statement in the Roosevelt Room the day after the uh, House and Senate voted and he signed the legislation. So let's work together to make government work better. Instead of treating it like an enemy or purposely making it work worse. That's not what the founders of this nation envisioned when they gave us the gift of self-government. You don't like a particular policy or a particular president? Then argue for your position. Go out there and win an election. Push to change it. But don't break it. Don't break what our predecessors spent over two centuries building. That's not being faithful to what this country is about. Ron Fournier, I, uh, we were both witness to that last government shutdown 17 years ago. I think yeah. I was uh, non-essential. I can't really remember, but I think I spent a lot of it <laughs> at L'Oreal Plaza over some margaritas. Um, <laughs> And then I I've known, bought a few of those. And then I've known you, you know, since you were covering uh, Governor Bill Clinton for the AP in Little Rock, Arkansas. And yeah. 
we were talking about before we started our conversation how we were both kids once in this racket and uh, we're both significantly older now. We both have families. And it, it, and I got to tell you, I mean, I follow your tweets very closely. I follow your writing very closely. And Thank you. I think that uh, it seems like you are trying to speak out loud to the 44th president and his senior advisors in succession, David Axelrod, David Plouffe, Robert Gibbs, uh, Dan Pfeiffer, Jen Palmieri, as if people like you have watched this unfold over a quarter century and you know how these dramas play out and if you just take the long view play nine innings that good things will result if you don't try and fight this out day by day and in the age of Twitter I almost feel like I'm seeing you speak aloud to Dan Pfeiffer and Jen Palmieri these days yeah a couple things have happened one my role as a journalist has changed when we worked together my job at the AP was to to uh report pretty straight um, what the Republicans and Democrats were were saying, the very, you know, who, what, when, where, why that the AP is so great at doing and is so important to be done. Um, I'm more in a analysis columnist role role now. The one thing that hasn't changed is I am personally and ideologically very much in the center. And um, I believe a journalist's job um, is to hold all sides accountable. Now, that doesn't mean evenly. You know, I don't believe in false equivalencies. That's pretty intellectually lazy. But it does mean um, listening closely to what they say and make sure they get done what they say they will do um, and not, not let them get off easy. And I think there's too much of that, frankly, in the media right now where you have too many um, left-leaning um, journalists who think it's their job to echo the White House and defend the White House and too many right-leaning journalists who think it's their job to echo um, and defend uh, uh, Republicans in the House. And I'd rather um, be one of the people who's throwing flags all over the field and speaks truth to power. I mean, I think it's pretty cool. A guy like me who you know barely got out of college and still can't spell a lick can tell the President of the United States, okay, you won yesterday, but big whoop. Uh, this is about uh, the many tomorrows ahead. And do you think, what sense do you have from either your private conversations with West Wing aides or the sort of public uh, readable Twitter back and forths, are they hearing you? Do they think you make sense? Or are they saying, Fournier, leave us no. alone. We have to fight this day to day. Yeah, they really have a disdain, and so do Republicans, by the way, for anybody who who doesn't believe in everything they do and who hasn't drank in the Republican or Democratic Kool-Aid. Um, it's partly because of what I talked about earlier, and you know, you're very aware of this media echo chamber. You can work in the White House now and never come in contact uh, with uh, anybody who's critical um, of you. You can ha- set up your Twitter feed and, and uh, um, uh, the, the daily clips you get and um, spend all your time just reaffirming uh, your views, either as president or as an aide to the president, and just dismiss all other points of view and have uh, you know a huge network of people attack anybody who might disagree even slightly, like, you know, it's been interesting this last couple of weeks. I really have spoken very clearly that the president was doing the right thing and not negotiating with Republicans and not conceding anything on uh, the health care bill, um, but urging him to look beyond this fight. And even that was seen as, um, uh, you know, disloyal and, you know, naive and stupid, because why would you think that the president is anything other than perfect? So, I mean, I don't expect folks to listen. I, I, I don't think I have very much influence, and, and I don't think anybody in the White House should be listening to me, but they should be listening to people other than um, the folks uh, who already agree with them. They should be listening to the, the huge center that's out there. And there was a fascinating poll I'd recommend your listeners um, look at that was in, in uh, Inquirer, an NBC Inquirer poll um, this week that talked about 51% of the public doesn't fit neatly into either either party. Um, there's, there's a huge middle out there that, that the White House and the Republicans are ignoring. How does that apply, Ron, to your work earlier this year with Sophie Quinton uh, that resulted in your story in Nothing We Trust? Oh, I appreciate you remembering that story. Um, th- that's, that's a theme I've been writing about uh, for, for many years, going back to the, going back to the AP, and the, the theme being um, one of the huge problems we have in this country, actually in this culture, um, looking beyond not just the day, but even outside of politics, is our 
fast declining faith in institutions, the pillars of our society. And I'm talking about everything from schools to churches to charities, politics, small business, big business, just about any institution you can think of, except uh, for the military, actually, statistically. Um, we have uh, we don't trust anymore, and our our trust is uh, g- going down more and more every year. And the institutions of the media and in politics, especially Congress, are about at the bottom. And when the media respond acts the way it does the last two weeks, has in the last two weeks, and when Congress responds so poorly, it undermines our, our faith in these institutions. And when you think about it. Um, what I try to get at with that with that story and nothing we trust uh, through a guy named Johnny Whitmire in Muncie, Indiana. Um, when you think about it, when you lose faith in these institutions, they, those are the pillars of our society. It, it's awfully grim thinking where we might be heading if people don't trust their preachers, their politicians, their business leaders, the folks running the um, uh, uh, the Red Cross. Um, we just. Ha- there's a lot of folks right now who just feel like they're totally disconnected and being and totally left alone, uh, peddling alone because there's no safety net out there. There's nobody they can count on. Not your sports figures. You know, you have steroids yeah. going on. And just think about how there's just no heroes left in in life today. And it's it's a big problem. How did you find Johnny Whitmire and have you stayed in touch with him since the story came out? I have. I, I went to Muncie, Indiana, to, uh, not to babble too long, is because it's a great place to study. It's polyoptics. We babble. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, you might be familiar with the great um, Middletown sociology studies that were done in the 1920s um, that really dug in on how people were affected by the last big change socially when we're going from uh, the agriculture era to the industrial era and when new technologies were making life simpler but so much more complicated, when the way we communicated with with each other changed dramatically in less than a generation when the way we connected with one another um, socially changed dramatically in the course of a generation we're going through that same kind of period again 100 years forward now that we're moving from the industrial era to uh, the tech era so i went back to muncie uh, because it's it's uh there's a historical uh parallels that are fascinating and it's still a town that has one foot in the uh, past century that would be the south part of Muncie that is looks very much like my hometown of Detroit or Toledo Um, and another foot in the next century in the 21st century and that would be the north side of town which is the highly wired highly affluent Ball State University uh, neighborhood so I went back there just to um, to write the story about what happens to a community and therefore the entire country the entire world when we lose faith with our institutions, and I dug in on what was happening in Muncie in unions, in their churches, in the media, which has really taken a hit, and in their politics, which are really a mess. Um, and along the way, I bump into this guy in, in, a, in a courthouse who was be, being, um, if I can say it, screwed over by the city and screwed over by his banks and screwed over by his neighbors who, who had already lost his house and um, was getting... Uh, um, uh, the last bit of dignity taken out away from him in this in this uh, hearing at City Hall, and it was this guy named Johnny Whitmire, and and it ended up he was a, a perfectly imper- a perfect and perfectly sad um, a- a emblem of how so many Americans now feel like they're being let down by all these institutions. Now the good news is the story brought a little attention to him. His Congressman Mike Pence, who's now the governor of the state reached out to him um, uh, and uh, he, his, um, uh, he had lost his house. He's gotten his house back since and uh, um, he had lost his job when I talked to him. He's gotten his job back. Um, so his life is turning around but uh, you know, for, there's many more Johnny Whitmires out there whose lives are not. The stories you're telling Ron Fournier in your years now at National Journal after so long doing the who, what, where, how and why of the AP are so Amazing when you allow yourself to get out of the beltway. And the next one I'm referring to, of course, is how two presidents helped me deal with love, guilt, and fatherhood. The story of you, your relationship with your own son, Tyler. I gather you're now deep in the throes of writing a book about this. Yeah, um, that was that was the hardest thing I've ever written. Um, my son, three years ago, was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which your, your listeners may know is a very mild form of autism. Basically, he um, doesn't have the inherent social skills that are born in many of us, so he has to learn things like eye contact and handshakes and modulating his voice and 
um, uh, I was having a hard time connecting with him. I, I, I came into parenthood with a lot of outsized expectations and kind of wrapped up in the mythologies of what it meant to be a father in this day and age. And my boy wasn't meeting those expectations, wasn't fitting uh, the field of dreams mythologies that I had wrapped around it. And um, it wasn't until he got diagnosed and my wife said, you know, you got to spend more time with your boy. And um, he needs to be um, for- forced into situations socially that will help him learn these skills. I want you to spend a year on the road with him um, doing something that you both love, um, which after some talk we decided was uh, the presidency. He happens to love uh, the hi- history. So we went to spend a year going to uh, various presidential historical sites and libraries and ended the trips um, by with meeting with the very gracious Bill Clinton and very gracious George W. Bush at their libraries, uh, Bill Clinton in Little Rock and George Bush in, um, actually it was before his library was built, um, in, in Dallas. And it was interesting. I learned a lot about those two men. It kind of reminded me that these guys I cover somewhat cynically, and yep. girls and women, um, they're real people. And uh, there's nothing that I can now do for Bill Clinton or George Bush, but they realize that being president, ser- serving in public service, there comes some responsibility. And they spent some time with my son and and I saw a different shade of them, and I learned a lot about my son on the whole journey, but, but especially uh, closing down with those two men. So it's, um, um, I'm going to try to try to see if I can help some other parents realize that um, we can't mistake um, the, the sons and daughters we, that we have, the beauty in them, for what we think we want them to be. From a tightly focused wire reporter and and uh, senior editor and writer at National Journal, how did publishing this story expose you to different parts of society, different people that you might have never otherwise come across? Well, for one thing, my wife and I are pretty new to the community of, of, of autism. We kind of thought, like a lot of parents, that we were kind of alone and we were scared and, and um, scared for him and, and scared that we weren't doing enough for him. and. What this did was open me up to this community of people, this great community of people, all who, who are love and are dedicated to their children, and a community of people who are autistic, like like Tyler. And, and um, you know, I've, I've met young men and women who um, have Asperger's, who are now li- living um, happy, successful, incredible lives. Um, I've met parents who are dealing with circumstances much more dire than anything we're going through, and they're handling it with much more... Um, um, strength than than I've ever been able to. Um, I just I was up in Boston last week uh, talking to a group of um, Asperger's parents and Aspies themselves, mm-hmm. and I'll be going up to Philly next week doing the same thing. So it's uh, it's this another part of me professionally and personally that never would have been there if I hadn't written the story. Ron Fournier, I don't want to let you go without. Uh going back to your hometown a little bit and uh, yes, another part of your, your uh, long-form writing about Detroit and its uh, past and its present and its future. And just to set a little context, let's go back to 1984, uh, Kirk Gibson coming up to plate. Oh, yeah. Kirk Gibson made his major league debut, his very first at-bat in the big leagues, against Goose Gossett, and Gossett struck him out on three pitches. Blew him away, Sparky says. Instead of thinking negatively, I looked over at Sparky, I'm taking him up top, it's my time, it's when it counts. And I was, you know, generating positive thoughts. The infield is up. They give Gibson the left field foul line, Brown is in left. And there it goes! In 1968, I was in sixth grade, and I lived that as a sixth grader here in the city, and now to be able to relive it in 1984 and be one of the guys who got to close it out is just very rewarding. Ron Fournier, it's 1984, you're just beginning your career in journalism, uh, and you've written now at National Journal, My Hometown, What Detroit's Demise Says About America. You look at Comerica Park in games uh, three, four, and five, it's absolutely filled to the brim. It's a beautiful stadium, and yet right around it, uh, it's a city struggling, trying to find itself. What's uh, what's the future of your hometown? Oh, geez, you, 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 you've just... Uh... I'm speechless. That that was I was a junior in college, uh, listening to that game. I think that was Vin Scully calling it on TV. But I heard the great Ernie Harwell on my uh, my radio give that call, 
um, the city then was um, was really hurting. I had to move to Arkansas because I couldn't find a job out of college. The two great newspapers at the time, Detroit News and Free Press, merged that year, um, and a lot of great journalists lost jobs, and the industry began its long uh, decline. Um, uh, my neighborhood at the time in 84 was in really good shape, the same block that my parents were raised on and I was raised on. Uh, was still a good middle-class cops and firemen uh, neighborhood. Now it's the uh, most dangerous, uh, murder-ridden neighborhood in the city of Detroit. Um, where that stadium where that happened is now an empty field. Uh, Comerica Park is a beautiful park right downtown. My daughter lives about maybe a mile from it. That mile or two-mile circular area downtown and midtown is, is, is pretty good, kind of gentrified, coming back good. Uh, the rest of the city, uh, what were once great middle-class neighborhoods, um, the driver of the great American middle class, uh, the ethic where you could graduate from high school on a Friday, go into a factory on a Monday, make a good living for your family, um, uh, have your kids do better than you do, have a maybe a, a small cottage and a boat, that's all gone. Uh, those neighborhoods are all gone. Um, uh, there, there are places in that city that are now what they were when my family first moved there three, four hundred years ago. Fields. Um, the beaver are back in Detroit. Um, I don't know what you do about um, a, a city that, um, a great city that so many horrible things have happened to the last couple of generations. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, the only silver lining to me is that there are a lot of families who still really love the city and a lot of people like my daughter now moving back in. Um, and maybe, maybe the city has bottomed out with his bankruptcy and can start uh, totally reinventing itself uh, because because uh, uh, the, the option is just too grim to think about. Well, Ron Fournier, we won't think about that on Saturday as we tweet, tweet back and forth against each there other during Game 6. Uh, all the best to you, Leland, and the Tigers, and I hope my Red Sox prevail. You guys got a great team. I just like mine a little bit more. and looking forward to the game. Thanks, Ron. Have a good day. You too, buddy. Take care. Washington, D.C. My message is simple. It's just not realistic. We're serious about growing our economy. Our economy. It's clear the president's is policy. Again. Not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy. Monetary policy. Jobs. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS. And as I promised at the top of the hour, we are now joined by Brad Stone, author of The Everything Store. All about Amazon.com, Jeff is a writer uh, who's all, who also covered this as a cover story for Bloomberg not that long ago. Welcome to Polyoptics, Brad. Thank you, Josh. You know, I, as I was reading all about the book, Brad, uh, it strikes me that this is not so much a story about technology or retailing or venture capital. It seems to me, as I go through everything I've read about the book, a story about communication with customers, with colleagues, with acquisition targets even, and even one's family, or in the case of, of what you discovered, not one's family. What, what about communication has come up in this uh, exploration of who Jeff Bezos is? You know what? That's actually really insightful. and It's not a way in which I really uh, thought of the book, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, he, but Jeff Bezos is someone who, um, you know, has done some incredible, accomplished some incredible things, right? He's built a company and a world-renowned brand in 20 years, uh, you know, that it's on track to, to earn over $70 billion this year. You know, it, it's rivaling Google and Apple for hegemony in the, in, the, in the world of digital tablets and devices and rivaling IBM in the world for enterprise services. He just went and bought the Washington Post. And there's a lot of ingredients to that success, but 
the way he communicates is, is definitely one. I mean, he, he's so, it's funny, I have this phrase in the book, I call, I call these oft-repeated uh, phrases of his Jeffism. And these are things like we start from the customer and work backwards, or we're willing to be misunderstood. Um, and it's, you know, it's frustrating to, to, as a journalist, when you hear these things over and over. But it's actually, I think, key to the way he communicates, which is that, you know, he's, he's sort, of, sort of very simple and clear about what he wants and what he expects from his employees. And because he's simple and clear and maybe somewhat repetitive, it, it's effective. This is a uh, graduate of Princeton University in engineering, uh, a person is who, as you mentioned, just purchased the Washington Post, who finds himself uh, in the Vanity Fair new establishment list at the very top. I want to hear a little soundbite from that and then come back with a question. So I think everyone was surprised by the Washington Post. I mean, I think if you went back six months ago and said, what story, what, what industry is everyone in Silicon Valley going to be talking about? You wouldn't have thought the newspaper industry. Mm -hmm. But right now, everyone's like, oh, yeah, suddenly the newspaper industry looks pretty good. And it's because Bezos is, has commands so much respect from people. I think they look at what he's done and say, well, he must know something that we don't know. And then even if you step back from the Post, um, just Amazon has been doing so well dominating um, so many different industries and also just encroaching on everybody else's territory that it's just looking very formidable. Brad Stone, Jeff Bezos, buys the Washington Post for about $150 million of his own money in pocket change. What was he thinking? <laughs> well, actually, first I want to I want to interject a little non sequitur here um, because it's, it's so funny that Bezos is uh, one of the most high-profile business figures, and yet actually a lot of people mispronounce his name. And the the the, uh, the audio clip that you just played, they were doing it. He it's um, you know it's the name of his uh, his a father who's from Cuba, and he they pronounce it Bezos. <laughs> so it's it's funny, like you know maybe if my book accomplishes anything, uh, it's that you know uh, the world uh, knows uh, that this is how you pronounce, you know, the, the name of this, uh, you know, uh, accomplished businessman. Or in any event, that's how they pronounce it. Um, and so, Josh, uh, to answer your question, you know, what, what, was, what was Jeff up to in buying the Washington Post? Um, you know what? I mean, he, he's always, he's a voracious reader, and, and books are key to what Amazon's accomplished. I kind of chronicle in the book how almost every major decision was based on a book that the management team read, and they've gone and developed a big, successful editorial business with the Kindle uh, and all the services for authors. And I just think, you know, he's optimistic about the future of journalism and that, you know, with his resources uh, and a long-term perspective and, you know, not having to kind of tailor your business to, you know, the demands of Wall Street and short-term, you know, oriented shareholders, uh, he believes he can turn the Washington Post around. The newspaper company, the spaceship company, the world clock company, is, is, uh -huh. is the management team partly uh, hopeful that Bezos will be distracted and not be around the hallways of Amazon to let, leash, let loose with any more of his nutters? <laughs> That's probably, uh, you know, it's probably the first question that popped into a lot of minds after he bought the Washington Post. I mean, he's already spending a day a week on the space company that he, that he founded, Blue Origin, which is trying to lower the cost of getting to space. And, you know, it would be a fair criticism of, of, or a fair concern of almost anyone, maybe other than Jeff Bezos, because one of the things he does so well is kind of innovate against his own calendar. Like, he, he's just very good, according to everybody I talked to, at figuring out ways to increase, to, to like, efficiently distribute his time. I kind of describe Amazon in the book as a series of chess boards, all perfectly oriented so that Jeff can play as many games at once. And this translates into little things like how meetings are started at Amazon with, with six-page documents, and everybody reads the, the document quietly at the start of the meeting. And it's because how, it's per, how, how he prefers to digest information. And when, when you like kind of worked at innovating against your schedule for as long as he has uh, and efficiently dispersing your time, you can do a lot of things. Um, I'll make one other point, which is that for the last 10 years, he's had inside Amazon a shadow. It's called the technical assistant, and it's an accomplished executive who basically follows him around in every meeting. Uh, they, they talk at the end of the day. Uh, the shadow goes on trips with him. And basically, the shadow 
follows up on key you know pieces of information, make sure make sure that his good ideas are followed up upon, and it's just a way of magnifying is his influence and uh, allowing him to use his time more efficiently. And it's just one of probably a million things that he does. So you know, can does he also have time to operate the Washington Post? You know, I, I doubt he'll be a hands-on CEO, but I could see him engaging and coming up with some new ideas and eventually, you know, bringing some of his own people into the newspaper. Fascinating, Brad Stone. We could go down so many rivulets of information with Amazon and, and what you're telling me. But on the matter of the shadow, uh, it, the company is now 20 years old or so. I'm not sure how long the shadow has been in existence. But in many large corporations, when an executive assistant or, or assistant to the president is appointed from the executive ranks, these are people who have ta- are tapped to go on to do much bigger and better things within the company. And yet you also write about how the company has chewed up and spit out a lot of uh, vice presidents of marketing. Have the shadows been <laughs> successful? And, and what other uh, management track has worked within Amazon? Oh, that's, it's a, that's a good question. Um, the, the, uh, the, the shadows have been successful. So the first kind of official one, Andy Jassy, is now running... Amazon's cloud business. This is known as Amazon Web Services, and it, it's it's revolutionized the technology space. It's the service that almost every young internet startup uses to operate. Uh, you know, government agencies use Amazon Web Services, including now recently the CIA and um, and and Andy Jassy. You know, Bezos's shadow uh, was is is running the the uh, the whole division, um, and then subsequent shadows. Um, and this is probably a function of where Jeff's interests lie these days. Um, a lot of the subsequent shadows come from and then return to the Kindle business. And, that's, you know, he, he's very focused on rolling out new, you know, hard pieces of hardware and new digital services. Um, and, and so, in, in fact, uh, the current the shadow, a guy named Jay Marine, was a vice president in the Kindle business, uh, really since the, the first Kindle came out in 2007. Um going back to the notion of the narrative uh and and we were talking earlier on in the conversation about communication and this should not gloss over our listeners uh very easily because i think this is so important and i come from a corporate communications background and a government background before that i'm a student of edward tufty and the notion of what powerpoint did to the challenger disaster and i wrestle every day with basically the inability to write at a corporate level or to reduce everything to what can be put into a PowerPoint presentation. Are PowerPoints popular at Amazon? They've been banished. (laughs) Jeff uh, Jeff Bezos banished them, you know, almost 10 years ago. And it's because he... uh, you know, he, he thought that they, they concealed lazy thinking and that they were inefficient, and he replaced them with these written narratives. And everybody in the company thought it was lunacy, and they rejected it. Um, and, and I talked to very high-up executives in Amazon that thought it was a joke and that it would never work uh, because, you know, it had never really been tried before. And, in fact, the first narrative, there was no page limit. So suddenly, like, every, every uh, executive or engineer at Amazon felt like they were back in college and they were writing these terms papers. And then subsequently, they decided there should only be six pages. Um, but uh, and then it's interesting because some, you know, some people have left Amazon uh, and gone to other companies and tried to bring that tradition over to, to their to their new companies. And, and actually, it, it often hasn't worked out. And, and I, you know, I'm not quite sure why, but I think it's very suited to Amazon and to Bezos himself and to everybody who's been trained in his way of thinking. And um, it's, it's something that's just sort of naturally foreign to, foreign to a lot of people. And so that's the notion of what an executive might have uh, with as many hours as he needs or he or she needs to put together a well-crafted six-page document. And yet part of the Amazon culture, too, is uncomfortable face-to-face communication in which Bezos might say aloud to somebody uh, after reading a narrative before a meeting, as, and you, I quote him in your book, this document was clearly written by the B-team. Can someone please get me the A-team document? I don't want to waste my time with a B-team document. How uncomfortable is Bezos with some of his people? Well, I mean, you know, that is drawn from a list of, his, uh, of what were really his all-time greatest hits. You know, I needed, everyone had a story like this, and I needed a place in the book, uh, you know, to, to make use of one so we're spitting naturally in, in the narrative. But in all fairness, uh, I, he probably is. I think he's probably gotten a lot better, and and you know, and that uh, this isn't 
let's say, the normal interaction, but he is tough, you know, and he's got a very high standard, and he expects the people around him to meet that standard. And like all great innovators, um, you know, Jobs, Bill Gates, um, Andy Grove at Intel, you know, he can be tough. Um, and it, it's why Amazon is an uncomfortable place to work, and it's probably why Amazon's so successful, because he's got that relentless drive and, and that high standard. Some of the most probing inquisitions he makes of his executives really only involve one character, which is the question mark uh, on an email that he sends to one of his employees. What does that mean when he sends you an escalation with just a question mark in an email? That means your night is ruined if you're an Amazon employee and you get that. Um, so, you know, Amazon's got 90,000 employees, uh, maybe even more than that now, maybe over a 100,000. Um, you know, many businesses, and clearly the CEO is, you know, cannot spend his time, you know, elbow deep in the details of all of these parts of the company. But what he does, and it's another way he disperses his time efficiently, is he monitors the email that comes into his email address, which is public. Um, and every so often, if a customer is complaining, or if he thinks it's an issue that demands further attention, he just forwards that email to the appropriate person inside Amazon with a question mark. Again, you know, a very efficient use of time. He doesn't mess around. You know, look at this question mark. Uh, and probably, in many cases, it's nothing more than a reflexive action on his part. But he is the CEO and the founder of the company. And so these emails have the effect of a ticking time bomb. You, you get these at Amazon, and, you know, you spring into action. You drop what you're doing. And essentially, you've got to fix the problem or explain it within hours because, you know, Bezos or perhaps a shadow uh, or perhaps, you know, somebody on this team will be expecting an answer or a resolution to the problem. I want to now shift from the way Bezos deals with his own colleagues to the way he deals with the public at large. Here is him a few years ago with John Stewart on The Daily Show. First, let me ask you this. Why is it if I want it delivered in three days, it's $1.50, but if I want it delivered in two days, it's $85? <laughs> Why is that? What's going on at Amazon? Hey, you need to join Amazon Prime and you get free two-day shipping for $79 a year. What? Yep. Free shipping Unlimited. for only $79 a year? That's not free. <laughs> That's $79 a year. Brad Stone, that's the characteristic Jeff Bezos laugh, but he doesn't do a lot of public speaking or or interviews. Why not? Well, you know, he, he actually he does a, a fair amount, uh, usually in conjunction with something that he is trying to, to promote. And like in all things, he's just incredibly strategic about it. Now, in the early years of Amazon, when he was really building the brand, and back then it was Amazon.com, of course, never Amazon, you kind of couldn't get him to be, you know, to shut up about it. He was everywhere. In fact, I, I remember covering Amazon.com back in those days, and, um, you know, particularly when the stock was falling and he had to restore people's confidence, he was frequently available. Um, but, of course, that was a different time. Uh, Amazon's much bigger. He's got a lot more responsibility. And I think there's also a factor that, you know, when you're a retailer and you get big and Walmart's kind of gone through this process, you know, the critics are out in force and they're, you know, people, some people are naturally inclined to see as kind of a menace to, to local mom and pop retail. Uh, so he's careful, you know, and he surfaces with friendly audiences when he has something to promote. And he's also incredibly strategic about what he's willing to discuss. You know, he doesn't veer too far off the talking points. Uh, you know, as if, almost as, if, as with everything, you kind of have to admire, you know, how disciplined he is. Um, uh, but, but he'll, you know, he'll give a couple of speeches a year. He'll give a couple of interviews, usually around uh, a, a product uh, launch. Uh, it's, it's less frequent than it was. And, of course, because they hold their cards so close to their vest, and because they often don't make other executives available, um, Amazon does, I think, have a, a, a well-deserved reputation for secrecy. So you are Brad Stone. You are a senior writer at Bloomberg Businessweek, one of the Bay Area's leading writers about technology. You want to write a book about Amazon and Jeff Bezos. Does he sit down and talk to you and open up? <laughs> Uh, well, so I knew, uh, having having uh, covered 
Amazon and technology for so long that it was probably not a good idea to ask for permission. Uh, he has a sort of reflexive response, and I know of other authors that have traveled down that path. And the response is sort of revealing. It's, it's, uh, it's, he, he says it's too early to write a book about Amazon, which when you consider that, you know, they're, they've, it's been tw- almost 20 years and it's one of the leading brands in the world, it's kind of remarkable. Uh, but, you know, it's his, his way of probably, you know, pushing off these inquiries. So I didn't ask, uh, but um, I, I thought it was time to tell the story and I was going to push ahead anyway. And then I had the opportunity, after I told them what I was up to, and I, you know, had a pretty good relationship with the company, uh, to go and and um, and to, you know, present the idea to them. And uh, I, I actually put together a, a narrative myself, a little press release for the book uh, to start the meeting off reading because it's what you do at Amazon. And while it was, you know, he was sort of re- well receptive to the idea, and actually said he was kind of rooting for me. And he ultimately opened up many doors, allowing me to talk to friends and some family members and some senior executives at Amazon. You know, he, he basically sort of stuck to his guns and, and it didn't, you know, it wasn't the kind of access, let's say, that Steve Jobs gave to Walter Isaacson. Uh, but, but at the same time, I felt, I felt like I got farther with, with Amazon than others have in the past. And, you know, they helped me make it a better book. And, and I was very thankful for that. And... Are, is part of the way Bezos deals with you like the way Brian Lewis is a representative for Roger Ailes or was a representative uh, minding the door or facilitating these conversations with executives or family members? Is this to perpetuate Bezos's undercurrent idea about Amazon.love and where Amazon mm-hmm. needs to fit in the psyche of its customers? Right. So you're, you're asking, you know, is this a way in a... Is this somehow a way of softening the company's image? I don't, you know, I don't think so. I think that, um, and look, I mean, I think, you know, things, efforts like mine probably exist at an altitude, you know, far lower than, you know, the kinds of things he actually spends his time thinking about. Um, but I, you know, I think that they probably saw that having this kind kind of account written was inevitable, you know, and and it is a great story. I mean, it's the story of a company that, you know, blew out of the gate, you know, built a tremendous business, but then suddenly everybody lost faith in, they rode off during the dot-com bust, right? Bezos was basically a pinata for a couple of years. You know, the stock price is well below even eBay, you know, even Yahoo. I mean, People just didn't believe. And then in the last couple of years, I subsequently you know, built a, a digital reading business, come out with tablets, uh, built a, an enterprise computing business. And now he is probably, arguably the most revered businessman in the world. And so, you know, it's a tremendous story. And, you know, I, I kind of heard that in the, in the instances where he, he did give his approval for someone to talk to me, he, that he said, just tell the story, you know, which I think, you know, is revealing. Like, there there was a great business story, and, uh, you know, that somebody was going to tell it. Well, clearly one of the most fascinating parts of your story, Brad Stone, and it sort of flies in the face, I think, of what you would say that the things you might be doing or beyond the, the things that Bezos would spend his time thinking about is how you go back to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, or the uh, his origins, and his origins as Jeffrey Jorgensen. And I want to hear a little bit of the mini-documentary that you have uh, at, at Bloomberg.com of discovering the origins of his biological father. I found him running a bike shop outside Phoenix. He had been a unicycle performer uh, in his youth, and yeah, he was surprised. He had lost touch with the family, uh, had thought about it his whole life, did not know his son was a billionaire, and uh, you know, it was, it was probably the surprise of his life. Brad Stone, it's an amazing story when you read it, uh, and and the the sort of tangential connection might be that laugh that we heard on John Stewart's show. Mm-hmm. Well, just to take a step back, um, I mean, it's, it's, it really is interesting how a lot of our business and cultural leaders and political leaders, you know, have these interesting backstories. And, and you can put Steve Jobs into that category. Of course, he was adopted, and Larry Ellison of Oracle. And for that matter, you know, Barack Obama, who never really knew his birth father, or Bill Clinton, whose birth father 
you know, passed away before he was born. And I don't know why, what the correlation is, um, you know, but clearly, like, this is for a very small percentage of, of the children kind of afflicted with these circumstances. Clearly, they're, they, it's a, some kind of motivating factor. And as I was preparing to tell the Bezos story, though really the Amazon story, but, you know, Jeff is, of course, the central figure, you know, I wanted to explore where he had come from, and this was a, sort of an untold element in the in the story. And um, as, yeah, as you said, uh, his, the, you know, the family had lost touch with uh, his biological father. Um, they they had moved out of Albuquerque when uh, Jeff was four, and I tracked him down. You know, using a lot of the internet tools available to us today, and found that he had this interesting history as a unicycle performer, and was running a bike shop outside Phoenix, and. I went to meet him, and to my surprise, as I kind of walked in and introduced myself, uh, he actually had no idea that his son was as successful as he is. Didn't know if he was alive or dead, Brad. Right. Yeah. That it, it is it is true, but but and clearly something that had haunted him his whole life, and that he had a lot of regrets about. So you know, if there was a, a good outcome, you know, from the book, it's a you know, it, it's at least that uh, it, it answered some of his questions about what had happened to. Uh, to his biological son. So last question, Brad Stone. These books come out and they talk, they say the story of the executive, they say the story of the company, but where they really probe deep into the heart of one's upbringing and one's formative years, they tell the story of Ted Jorgensen and Jeffrey Jorgensen and Miguel Bezos and, and Jeff's mom. Uh, so I'm curious about any feedback you've got from Amazon PR or Jeff himself about what it means to see these untold stories now in print and for everyone else to see. No, I'm Josh, I'm curious about that too. I I have not heard much. Uh, the book just came out. Um and I, you know Amazon generally actually is is uh uh in many different situations when articles are written about the company, they they often tend not to respond. Um you know when they speak, they they try to speak kind of simply uh and directly to their customers. So I'm not really surprised I haven't heard anything. Um, and you know, as to um, how you know what they're how they really feel about it, uh, I, I can't say. But um, I'm happy to report that my sales on Amazon are good. So at least, at least, at least, uh, at least they haven't you know, and not that they would, but at least uh, they haven't stood in the way of that. Get it in hardcover on Kindle, uh, in audiobook, uh, or. Uh, Read as much as you can on Amazon.com, the excerpts that are available. Brad Stone, the author of The Everything Store, all about Jeff Bezos and Amazon.com. Brad, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on Focus. <laughs>